You are listening to the teaching podcast of Praise Community Church in Mason City, Iowa. For more information about our church, please visit praisecc.org. Now, the interesting thing uh, when it comes to the area, the issue of uh, sin in our lives is what most people struggle with isn't so much the act of sinning or the actions of sin. What most people struggle with is they just don't like the negative feelings that come with sin. For a lot of us, it's that potential of we feel guilt, we feel shame, we feel condemnation, we feel, you know, punishment, or that we deserve to be punished, or we kind of uh, think about maybe getting caught. Those are the things we kind of think about when it comes to the issue of sin. So for a lot of people, the ultimate solution to the problem of sinning is we try to look for ways to remove the guilt, the shame, the condemnation that attaches itself to sin. And one of the ways that we do that, not just us, but our culture, is what we're going to talk about today. It's that twist. It's where we turn sins into mistakes. When you think about the word sin, it's kind of one of those words that's kind of a bothersome, it, it, it kind of have, has a, an annoying ring to it. it. It's an uncomfortable word. It's a word we really don't use very much in our culture today. And one of the reasons that we've kind of erased or, or tried to erase that word sin from our vocabulary is because it conjures up God. If you're a parent, when your kids do something wrong, you don't call them into the room and tell them they've sinned. I mean, if you do something bad at work, it's not like your boss is going to call you into the office and tell you that you've sinned. If unfortunately you get pulled over uh, by the police for speeding or heaven forbid something worse, the cop isn't going to say to you, you've sinned. With the IRS, you're not going to get a letter in the mail from them. And I know the IRS is famous for using a lot of words we don't understand. But one of the words they're never going to use when they talk to you is the word sin. See, if, if I break my rules, I've broken my rules. If I break the law, I've broken the law. But we don't classify, we don't talk about those things as sin. Rule breaking and law breaking and disobedience happen within the sphere of human family business and government. And yet, that word sin, when we use that word, what often happens is it throws us into a completely different category. Sin makes me think of God. It echoes of judgment. It has a ring of guilt to it. it. It conjures up the idea of punishment. Sin makes me think that there's maybe some great moral absolute, that there's someone out there bigger than me, and I am accountable to whoever that is. 
And if I've broken those laws or I've broken the rules that God has set up, then I am in big trouble. That's what we think about when we think about sin. Sin has one of those ways of making us feel bad about ourselves. Or it makes us feel condemned by God. We equate the word sin with God is mad at me and he's going to punish me. And because of all that, we don't like the word sin. And as, as a culture, we kind of do everything we can to kind of avoid using that word. In fact, the dictionary kind of supports this whole idea so let me just read to you how the dictionary defines sin. It says, sin is a transgression of divine law. That's again, why I don't tell my children you've sinned because sin is a transgression, the dictionary says, of a divine law, which implies there is a divine person or there is a God who has set up rules. The definition continues. It says it's any act regarded as such a transgression, especially a willful or deliberate violation of some religious or moral purpose. In other words, sin means I did it on purpose. Sin means it was willful. I planned it. It was intentional. It was premeditated and deliberate. That word sin means I knew it was sin before I ever did it, but I did it anyway. So who needs that? Who wants that? And because we don't like that word and all of the inferences and the consequences that potentially come with that word, we have chosen to just adopt a new word, a new way of thinking, a much more comfortable an easier way to deal with what's going on in our lives. We don't sin. We just make mistakes. So let's look at the dictionary, that same dictionary, and let's see how does it define the word mistake. A mistake is an error in action, calculation, opinion, or judgment caused by poor reasoning, carelessness, insufficient knowledge, etc. See, a mistake, it's just simply an error in action. Oh, I didn't mean for that to happen. It was a mistake. It was the result of just poor reasoning or poor planning on my part. It, it, it was, I just didn't know. And because I didn't know, I didn't intend for that to happen. Therefore, it's just a mistake. I didn't know any better. I'll know better next time. And underneath all of that is, is this assumption, you can't be too mad at me. It was a mistake. I didn't do it on purpose. Nobody's perfect. I made a mistake. So you kind of see how we prefer that word mistake more to the word sin. 
Now, again, when you think about it, there's really a huge difference, a huge chasm between the word sin and mistake. See, sin is intentional. Mistakes are accidental, right? You don't punish someone who made a mistake, okay? A mistake, it may require restitution, but not punishment. There's another difference between that word sin and mistake. Sin requires forgiveness. A mistake, maybe just an apology. For a mistake, I don't have to ask you to forgive me. It's a mistake. I can just say, I'm sorry. It was a mistake. I didn't mean to. Let's just move on. And the biggest difference between the word sin and mistake is also where I think the twist, the deception that we've kind of been looking at these last couple of weeks, that's where that, this twist, this deception, this lie of the enemy can be found. See, if everything I do wrong, and I mean everything that I do wrong, can just kind of be dumbed down and twisted into and turned into a mistake, then you know what? That just makes you and me mistake makers. And if I'm just a mistake maker, then that means I didn't sin. And if I didn't sin, that doesn't make me a sinner. And if I'm not a sinner, guess what? I don't need a savior. See, if you're just someone who just makes mistakes all the time, then all you got to do is just dig down deeper and try a little harder next time, right? People who make mistakes are simply people who need to do better next time. People who make mistakes, you know, you just may have to break some nasty little habits. People who make mistakes just have to try harder to improve themselves. Maybe get another book, another self-help course. But if I'm a sinner, then that seems to be more foundational to who I am than what I do. If I'm a sinner, then simply trying harder to do better next time isn't going to fully address the issue of my sin. If I'm a sinner, then I probably owe somebody an apology. I probably deserve something in return. If I truly see myself as a sinner then it also carries with it the implication, I need a savior. I need someone to save me from my sins. So that's the deception. That's the twist, the lie that we live with in our own personal lives. We see it lived out in our culture today. That when it comes to guilt, I'm not a sinner. I'm a mistake maker. And since I'm not a sinner, I don't need a savior. I'd rather just be a mistake maker who just needs to commit to trying harder next time. 
Now, the problem with this is deep down inside, we all know better than this. We know this isn't true. We have a conscience, something that God has given to us. And Paul says that conscience, it, it, it's constantly justifying us before God or it is accusing us before God. That's the role. That's why God gave us a conscience. We know deep down inside of us that these so-called mistakes are much deeper. They're much worse. They are premeditated. They're calculated. They're preplanned. They are intentional decisions to benefit ourselves at the expense of others. We did it on purpose. We just didn't plan on getting caught. Isn't that true? Not only did you do it, but chances are you've done it before. And not only have you done it before, but you're going to do it again. And not only are you going to do it again, but chances are you're going to look forward to the next time you get to do it again. And you know in your heart, we all know deep down inside our hearts that what we did was more than just a mistake. It was not unintentional. It wasn't because of bad calculation or poor planning on our part. It wasn't carelessness. It wasn't a lack of knowledge. You knew exactly what you were doing. You knew exactly what you were doing the last time you did it because it wasn't a mistake. It is much, much deeper than that. And that's where the guilt, the shame, the condemnation, all of those negative feelings and emotions that we kind of begin to experience comes from that. And then the question becomes, what do we do with that? telling myself nobody's perfect and that I'm just going to try harder next time doesn't remove the guilt, the shame, the condemnation. Why should I feel guilty? Why should I feel all of that? It was a mistake, wasn't it? Now here's the strange thing. When Jesus showed up, he taught very opposing ideas that at face value seem like these teachings should not be coming out of the same person's mouth. Jesus comes along and he starts teaching and some of the things that he says actually makes people feel worse about themselves. Jesus, he kind of comes along, and, and what he does intentionally on purpose is he kind of raises the righteousness bar. He kind of raises the goodness bar. He raises the holiness bar, and he does that so high that everyone around him starts feeling terrible about themselves. 
Now, believe it or not, Jesus comes along with a very condemning message. And the message is that nobody is as good as they need to be. Nobody's as righteous as they should be. No one is as holy as they need to be. And then the amazing thing is, Jesus would follow all of that up by saying, God loves you. Now this was confusing to people because they're hearing this and they're thinking to themselves, either I'm terrible or God loves me, which is it? And Jesus says, it's both. You are terrible, but God loves you. Jesus is saying that you are far worse than you thought. And God loves you far more than you'll ever deserve. You're not as righteous of a person as you project yourself to others to be, but God is just crazy about you. And the people that just wanted to be mistake makers, the people that just wanted everybody to know and to understand about them, that they just make mistakes. They didn't like Jesus because Jesus made them feel bad about themselves. But the people who knew they were not mistake makers, the people who knew that they were sinners loved Jesus. because they were honest enough to say, you know what, he's right. I'm not just a mistake maker, I am a sinner. And I'm not as righteous as I try to portray myself to be. And if there's any hope in the world for me, it's not gonna come by me just trying harder next time to do better, to promise, Harder to commit myself, to discipline myself more. If there is any hope for me in any of this, it's not through my efforts. I need a Savior. Now, here's how Jesus approaches this if you're skeptical of what I'm saying. Matthew 5, beginning in verse 17, this is, again, the famous Sermon on the Mount. This is at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. These are kind of some of his foundational teachings. And right there in verse 17, he says, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. He said, I did not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In other words, Jesus is saying to them, if you think that I have basically kind of come just to, to, to do away or, or to ignore all of those Old Testament rules, laws, regulations, forget it. He said, I didn't come to abolish or do away with them. I came to fulfill them. If you thought I was coming to kind of remove all of those extreme, difficult 
hard-to-do laws or, or to dumb down things or, or to try to make it easier, to lower the, the bar of God's expectations and standards. He says, you're missing the point. I didn't come to dumb down anything. I didn't come to erase or to do away with any of that. He said, I have come to raise the bar higher. Jump down to verse 19. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. A few verses over. For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds, this is key, unless your righteousness, your goodness, your holiness exceeds, surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I want you to understand when Jesus said that, there probably was an audible gasp that went off throughout that crowd because around the periphery of the people that Jesus were teaching, was teaching are these Pharisees and the original righteous brothers. Because the full-time job of the Pharisees, the religious leaders, was to be good, to be holy, to be righteous, to be rule keepers. I mean, that was their job. If you were to go up to any of them and say, what do you do for a living? They would say, I am a rule keeper. I'm good at keeping rules. I spend all of my time being righteous and holy. That was their occupation. That was their sole function in life. So Jesus kind of points them out in the crowd. He says to the others kind of gathered around there, he says, let me tell you, if your righteousness, your goodness, your holiness does not surpass, exceed theirs, those people who are some of the best at being holy, righteous, and good, he says, you're not going to see the kingdom of heaven. Now, the average person in that crowd, they're probably kind of thinking to themselves, game over. If that's what I have to shoot for, I'll never make it. I know me. I know my past. I don't have enough time in the day to be that good, to work that hard at it. Because no matter how hard I try, it'll never be enough. If my righteousness has to surpass their righteousness to get into the kingdom of heaven, then there's no place for me. Jesus kind of says to them, this is bad, isn't it? I mean, this is way worse than you thought it was, isn't it? And while he lets that thought kind of settle over them, he gives them some very specific examples. And he says, you heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder or kill. 
And whoever shall murder or kill shall be in danger of judgment. But I say to you that whosoever is angry with his brothers without cause will be in danger of the judgment. Now, now the people hear that and they're saying, all right, time out. Now, I know it's one thing to you know, equate murdering someone as, as, as sin, as being wrong. We get that. But you're telling us just even thinking about the thought of murdering someone is sin. Huh? You're saying if I'm angry enough to do it, but don't pull the trigger, I'm just as guilty as if I actually pulled the trigger and murdered someone. And Jesus said, yeah, the bar is a lot higher than you thought, isn't it? The standards and expectations that God has for you are greater than you ever imagined. And while they're thinking about that one, Jesus gives them another one. Verse 27, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. And they think, hey, I'm good on that one. I've never, ever committed adultery. I'm good. I'm feeling good about myself. And then Jesus goes on in verse 28 and he raises the bar and he says, but I say to you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. They're thinking, oh, man. Are you serious, dude? I, I get the thou shalt not commit adultery. That's pretty clear. I get that. I'm good with that. But you're saying if we've even thought about it, imagined it, fantasized about it, we're guilty? Do you realize, Jesus, you just condemned basically all men on that one? Who can be that good? Who can be that righteous? Come on, Jesus. Who could live their whole life and never, ever think a lustful thought about a woman? I mean, if that's the standard, if that's what it takes to get into the kingdom of heaven, there's not going to be anybody there. God is going to be up there in heaven all by himself if this is what it takes. Jesus just keeps on going. You've heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. And then Jesus raises the bar of righteousness but I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. They're like, love my enemies? Jesus, if I love my enemies, they're not going to be my enemies any longer. Besides, do you even know or care what they did to me? I mean, can we talk about that? Pray for those who persecute me. Jesus, I don't even pray for my neighbors, let alone those who persecute me. 
what planet, dude, are you from? If this is the standard, if this is the bar of righteousness, of goodness, of holiness, if this is what excites God, if this is what God's looking for, forget it. You're telling me, Jesus, I'm a murderer just because I got angry with somebody. I'm an adulterer because I've had a lustful thought. That if somebody, you know, uh, slaps me on the right cheek, I'm just to offer them the other one. If someone takes my coat, I should offer them my shirt. That I'm basically a sinner. That I don't love my enemies enough. I don't pray hard enough for those who persecute me. If that's what it takes, Jesus, I got news for you. Nobody is that righteous. Nobody is that good. Nobody is that holy. And Jesus just smiles and says, I know. That's my point. You came to this sermon, to this teaching, to this sermon on the mount, thinking that you're really nothing but a bunch of mistake makers. People who just need to try better. But I'm here to tell you, it's much worse than that you are a sinner and there is no hope for you if it all depends on your righteousness, your efforts, your goodness. So Jesus really kind of comes along with basically two messages. Message number one, you're a sinner in trouble. Message number two, God loves sinners and he sent a savior on your behalf. Message number one, you're hopelessly lost. Message number two, God sent me to find you, to rescue you, to save you. And Jesus said to them, and Jesus would say to us today, until you and I embrace and come to terms with the fact that we are sinners, we're never going to be open to embracing the fact, the truth, that God has sent a Savior. As long as you see yourself as someone who's just kind of out there living life, just making a bunch of mistakes, here to try harder, until you finally come to terms, till we finally come to grips with the fact that you don't accidentally do things. There is something much deeper, something much more fundamentally wrong with you and me. And until we embrace the fact, come to terms with, and acknowledge that we are sinners, we will never fully embrace our need for a Savior. So Jesus comes to them and he comes to us with a message that simply says, it's worse than you thought it. You're worse than you thought. That standard of righteousness, of holiness, of goodness is higher than you ever thought or imagined. And nobody not even me, is going to get there by our own merit, by our own efforts, by our own ways. 
because God is far more righteous, far more holy. He is the personification of goodness. And he is far more righteous than you and I have ever thought or imagined. Now, some of you may be familiar with the story in John where the Pharisees and the religious leaders bring a woman to Jesus who's really been kind of caught red-handed in the very act of adultery. There was no question. There was no debate. There was no argument about that. She pretty much acknowledged her sin. And so they bring her to Jesus and they say, you know what, Jesus, we've heard everything, you know, that you have said about the law. And we understand you're not here to kind of dumb it down, to excuse it away, to remove it, but you're really here to, uh, you know, fulfill it. And the law says that this adulterer has to be stoned. And so what do you say, Jesus? And I'm sure Jesus is kind of thinking to himself, you know what, you're right. She deserves to die. And then Jesus does something very interesting. He, he kind of looks at all of those who were standing there before him and this woman with rocks in their hands. And he says, those of you without sin can cast the first stone. In other words, he said, everybody in this crowd who is just a mistake maker, but not a sinner, then you go right ahead, condemn her, and cast the stone. And the Bible says that one by one, everybody in that crowd dropped their stone and left. The scripture says that Jesus looks at this woman who's caught in the very act of adultery, and she says, where, where are all of your accusers? And she says, there are none. And Jesus says, you're right. Now go and leave your life of sin. Here's what Jesus wanted that woman, and he wants you and I to understand. Embracing, admitting our sinfulness, our weakness, our failures, positions us to acknowledge our need for a Savior daily. Every day, every hour, every moment. I need thee every hour, is what the great hymn says. Guilt, shame, desperation, hopelessness that drive you to God are good things in His hands because it leads you to acknowledge and embrace your need of a Savior both now and forever. And see, as long as you see yourself as a mistake maker, you'll never run in God's direction when you sin you'll run the opposite direction. You won't run to him, you'll run from him. And as long as we see ourselves as mistake makers, we, we don't know what to do with the guilt, the shame, the condemnation. You know what our culture does with it? They drink it away, they dope it away, they sleep it away, they shop it away, they eat it away. Or they just busy it away in front of the television and the computer. Or we ignore it or we cover over it. Or we take it out on somebody else. We blame somebody else, but we never resolve it. 
And the reason we're never able to resolve it, the reason we're never able to address our guilt, our shame, that feeling of condemnation, is because it requires forgiveness. That requires you and I seeing our mistakes for what they truly are. Sins against a good, kind, gracious, merciful Father. And when we see our sins and we acknowledge ourselves as a sinner, you know what? That positions us uniquely positions us as ones who need a Savior, and it makes you and I candidates for God's forgiveness, for His goodness, for His favor, for His mercy, for His love, which the Bible says He just wants to lavish upon you. That's His heart. That's His desire. That's how He sees sinners. I've provided everything. I've made a provision for all of that. You don't need to come up with other options. I've got this covered. And that's the beauty of communion. When we take communion, it's just that invitation. It's that opportunity to see ourselves for who we really are and to see him for who he truly is. We're the sinner. He is the Savior. His body was broken. His blood was shed, not for just people who are mistake makers, not just for people who are just going to try harder next time. His body was broken. His blood was shed. The very act indicates there was a great price that had to be paid. This isn't trivial. Again, mistakes, we, we can cover over those. We can apologize for those and move on. Sins, it's got to be dealt with. And every time we take that bread and we dip it in that juice, it is a reminder. He has not left us to our own. He's not left us to our own devices, to our own efforts. But it's just where we come to acknowledge what he did for us. It speaks to the severity of our sin. God didn't just slap his hands for my sin and your sin. It's much more serious than that in God's eyes. And oftentimes, again, we, we try to just explain that away. No, th this is a big deal. A man laid down his life. He allowed his body to be broken, his blood to be shed, because he knew there was no other way. And the Bible says every time we do this, we are acknowledging 
our need for a Savior. One of the things that we're going to be kind of talking about in, throughout this year again is just what, what does maturity look like? What does it mean to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ? And part of that maturity is seeing ourselves for who we truly are and seeing him for who he truly is and responding to that in the way that God has reached out. He sent a savior. He said to Mary, you're gonna name that son Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And I've talked about this before. It's not a one-time act. It is a one-time act that has ongoing needs. It has ongoing solutions. It, it, it just, it reverberates. And every time, and we, we, we sang about that this morning, the precious blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing, nothing, nothing but the blood of Jesus. So this morning, as we kind of just close in prayer, We're going to invite you to come this morning and to receive communion. And we, again, want you to see it for what it truly is. We are all in the same boat. We all struggle. We all sin. Daily basis. Our need for a Savior never, ever ends. And this morning is just, again, an opportunity to acknowledge that very fact. You have come to save me, to deliver me, to heal me, to give me what I don't deserve, to give me peace, to give me forgiveness, to give me wholeness, all that I need the Savior has for you and me. And so when we come and we take the body and we dip that, we're just, we're acknowledging that. Jesus said, do it in remembrance of me. So this morning, my hope is that if you're here this morning and you kind of just see yourself as someone who's just going through life making mistakes, you don't need to do that. God's made a way for us to call it what it really is and to find complete freedom, to find healing and wholeness, as I said. And so this morning, we want to just invite you to come. And as you take that again, it's just acknowledging, Jesus, I need thee every hour. Let's pray. Father, we just again thank you we thank you for the work of the cross. We thank you for the message of Jesus. That he would tell us that left to ourselves, we are without hope. But because of him, 
because of his sinlessness, because of the price he paid upon the cross for you and I. That in our hopelessness, we now have great hope. In our places of deception, we now have the truth. And Father, this morning we thank you that your word says that there's no greater love than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. And we thank you, Father, that through Jesus you call us friends. You have reconciled us to yourself through the work of the cross. We don't need to rely on anything other than the cross of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, Father, we just come and we fully and we wholly put our faith, our trust, our dependency in you and you alone. Not in myself, not in others, but in you alone. And I thank you, Father, that you sent your Son and that he willingly and with great joy came to give his life for us. And in that, Father, we are eternally grateful. We are eternally thankful. And Lord, just help us to walk more and more in the reality and the power of the victory of the cross. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So it's one of You are listening to the teaching podcast of Praise Community Church in Mason City, Iowa. For more information about our church, please visit praisecc.org.